0: Should we go electric?
1: I think we should go electrified with Toyota.
0: Electrified?
1: Electrified means options.
0: So electrified looks different for everyone.
2: Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified.
1: Uh, Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash 0
2: I'm Arturo Daag, a uh, geologist. And actually, uh, when I just started, uh, my first experience was Pinatubo, volcano, yeah.
1: Arturo Dog studies volcanoes, and on June fifteenth, 1991, he was hunkered down in an Air Force base in the Philippines, 10 miles east of Mount Pinatubo. And then he felt something.
2: The station is quite near to the volcano, and we could feel the rumbling sound. We feel earthquakes. It's like um, every 10 seconds, we feel earthquake on the ground. It's just a volcanic earthquake, actually.
1: Mount Pinatubo would turn out to be the largest volcanic
2: eruption of the last 100 years. Inside the big ash cloud, it's a total darkness, like evening and uh, a raining of ash continuously. The ash cloud blotted out the sun. Things got biblical. So there's essentially chaos and we think it's quite dangerous. Only you can see lightning. So we don't know what's happening. And then it got worse. A powerful
1: storm moved over the Philippines. Thick globs of volcanic ash came
2: raining down on houses. The asphalt is wet, It's like raining mud. And you can smell a bit of sulfuric stents.
1: You can hear the thunder. Outside is total, utter blackness. You can hear the ashy mud falling on the roof of your building. I mean, that sounds like hell. Yeah, yeah. Were you more excited as a researcher or terrified as a person?
2: Really scared, actually, because uh, visually we cannot see something. We only see lightning, so we left that area.
1: Arturo Dog is one of just a handful of people who witnessed the eruption from such a close distance and survived. Hundreds died, thousands of homes were destroyed, and millions of tons of sulfur dioxide were belched into the atmosphere.
2: During the height of eruption, uh, so the ash went as far as Singapore, I think.
1: In the weeks after, particles from the explosion would encircle the globe. Some believe that the eruption kicked off extreme weather events, droughts across Africa, flooding along the Mississippi River. Mount Pinatubo was terrifying. But today, some of the top climate scientists in the U.S. see it as an inspiration. Because you see, the volcano had an interesting side effect. For two years,
0: it chilled a warming planet. Because large volcanic eruptions do that every once in a while, and we can observe them, and we understand the impacts, people have thought, let's emulate them.
1: Welcome back to Season 2 of Crazy Genius. This season, we're taking a deep look at five radical ideas to save the world. And what's more radical than seeing the fallout of the largest volcanic event of the last century and thinking, huh, you know what? That gives me an idea. For The Atlantic, I'm Derek Thompson. This is Crazy Genius. Rob, how worried should we be about climate change?
3: Um it's <laughs> a good question. I think we should be we should be pretty worried. Um, yeah, I,
4: uh,
3: <laughs> that's a uh, where would where would I start? Robinson
1: Meyer is a staff writer at the Atlantic. He's our resident expert on climate change. We're going to get back to the volcanoes in just a second, I promise you. But first, let's understand what's at stake.
3: Climate change is going to basically affect just about everything that already causes problems for people, whether it's droughts, whether it's intense storms, whether it's impoverishment. It's gonna do that uh, certainly within our lifetimes and you know more than certainly, definitely, assuredly within the lifetimes of babies born right now. But actually, I think what many experts worry about the most is all the ways that changing the natural system is going to affect the human system. We're not good at dealing with civil wars. We're not good at dealing with failed states.
1: Climate change disrupting politics isn't some hypothetical. It's happening right now. Here's an example. About 10 years ago, the worst drought in centuries struck Syria, forcing thousands of rural families into cities like Damascus.
3: Those cities are exactly where the Syrian civil war started. And the Syrian civil war produced this enormous pulse of formerly middle-class people trying to move to Europe, where... They triggered a political crisis which amplified the success of far-right movements. And in Germany, for instance, caused the far-right party to have the best election it had had since the end of World War II.
1: A drought in eastern Syria can trigger a political crisis in Berlin. A melting polar glacier can worsen floods in Louisiana. Climate change doesn't obey national borders. It's a world war one the human race has declared against itself. So how do we fix it?
3: There are four different ways to attack climate change.
1: The four R's. Reduce, remove, rescue, and reflect. The first is the most obvious.
3: Reduce carbon emissions. The best way to fix climate change is going to involve reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. But around the world, this has turned out to be a political nightmare. We have this, you know, at this point 27 year history of climate agreements being really unsuccessful and really difficult to implement and really politically controversial. That brings us to the second R, remove. We can suck greenhouse gases out of the air, out of the atmosphere, and then trap them in the Earth's crust, which is like the holy grail. It is like the holy grail because it sounds amazing and we haven't found it yet.
1: Scientists don't know any cheap and efficient way to do this for the whole planet. The third R is rescue. Protect the most vulnerable parts of the world,
3: like polar ice caps. Keep individual glaciers from melting as fast as they're melting, maybe by building a berm under the water to keep warm water from melting them at the base.
1: But the first three are really hard, really expensive, or, given current technology, basically impossible. And that leaves us with number four.
3: Yes, and so we're stuck with reflection.
1: Reflection means blocking solar radiation from entering the atmosphere. Homeowners do something like this when they paint their roofs white to keep their houses cool. But how would you whitewash the roof of the planet? You would need something big, a film of particles that stretch around the world to bounce sunlight back into space
0: that's what volcanic eruptions do. We observe volcanic eruptions making this cloud naturally, and we observe the climate response to it. That's Alan Robach. I'm a distinguished professor in the Department of Environmental Sciences at Rutgers University in New Jersey.
1: Alan Robach was a lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That group won the Nobel Peace Prize. And he says we just might be able to mimic volcanic eruptions like Mount Pinatubo.
0: If we were to emulate that, we would have to have a fleet of airplanes continuously flying up into the stratosphere, spraying a cloud up in the upper atmosphere to reflect sunlight to cool the Earth, to counteract the warming. You're talking about a fleet of
1: airplanes trying to yes. spritz the stratosphere and- <laughs> to emulate a volcanic explosion?
0: Yes, Every once in a while, big volcanic eruptions put a lot of sulfur dioxide gas in the upper atmosphere, in the stratosphere. And this SO2 reacts with water and forms a thin cloud of sulfuric acid droplets, which spreads around the world by the winds. In the stratosphere, there's no rain, there's no weather, and so it will last for a long time the average lifetime of a particle there is about a year, whereas if you put pollution in the troposphere in the lower part of the atmosphere where we live, the average lifetime is about a week. So if you can get the stuff into the stratosphere, it'll be 50 times more effective. So because large volcanic eruptions do that every once in a while, and we can observe them, and we understand the impacts, people have thought, let's emulate them. The last big eruption was the Mount Pinatubo eruption in 1991 in the Philippines, and it caused global cooling of about a a degree Fahrenheit for a year or two. So this would be like one Pinatubo eruption every four years.
1: The first time I heard this idea, I thought it was almost comically dystopian. Like, isn't this from a movie?
3: We don't know who struck first,
1: us or them. But we know that it was us that scorched the sky. Oh yeah, this is how we destroyed the world in the Matrix. But this isn't some dashed-off plan from a couple desperate scientists. In fact, the idea of geoengineering is almost as old as warnings about climate change.
0: The 1965 report... Of The U.S. government, under President Lyndon Johnson, discussed this and other techniques of creating a cloud in the stratosphere. They actually calculated how much it would cost to use balloons, to use airplanes.
1: It sounds like science fiction, but it's not. It's science. We need practical ways of reducing climate change more than ever. And this plan just might work.
0: Number one benefit would be it would reduce global warming, including floods, droughts, stronger storms, sea ice melting. Also... It wouldn't break the bank. Just the airplanes and the sulfur and the pilots and stuff would cost a few billion dollars a year. So that's not very much at all. Exxon makes $50 billion a year as profit.
1: Can you paint me a picture? If I'm standing outside looking at one of these machines, this fleet of airplanes, spraying aerosols into the atmosphere, what am I seeing? What does it look like?
0: So... Basically, what you would see is it would be like a thin white cloud up in the atmosphere. You wouldn't have a blue sky anymore. What does that mean, (laughs) you wouldn't have blue sky anymore? Well, no more blue skies, uh, no more Milky Way. Of course, if you live in Manhattan, you can't see the Milky Way anyway. So
1: this is essentially a plan to create a global cloud to partially blot out the sun and wipe away blue skies. It's, it's it's a terrifying idea, and I just want to make absolutely clear. How do we know this is going to work?
0: First of all, we don't know, even know if we could do this. I have a list of 27 reasons why it might not be a good idea. That's a lot so, of reasons. It wouldn't do anything about... Ocean acidification probably wouldn't stop the ice sheets from melting because they're melting from below Not Drought in Africa and Asia, perturb the ecology with more diffuse radiation, ozone depletion, impacts on tropospheric chemistry, less solar electricity generation, it would degrade passive solar heating, effects on airplanes flying in the stratosphere, electrical properties of the atmosphere, terrestrial astronomy, there'd be more sunburn because it would be cooler, stargazing, human error, enhanced acid rain, acid snow, and unexpected consequences. You listed the drawbacks. And to I'm my ear, done. the list of drawbacks <laughs> is. I'm sorry? I'm not done. By oh, you're the not way. done? Oh, my God. Keep going. Not, not, Keep going. Okay. So, governance. You can't stop the effects quickly. What if something went terribly wrong? You couldn't stop it. Uh, you have to wait for the particles to fall out. Commercial control. What if you get this big multinational corporation that's doing it and you say you want to stop? Well, you're losing jobs in your congressional district. You can't stop. I mean, there's a good example of that with uh, military equipment even the military doesn't want. But a bigger problem is whose hand would be on the planetary thermostat? Hmm. How would we decide what temperature we want the planet to be? In the Arctic, Russia, Canada don't mind it a few degrees warmer. It's cheaper for their... Heating bills, they can go exploit the Arctic Ocean, whereas islands in the Pacific are drowning now because sea level rise. They want it even colder than it is now. How do we decide? And one of the things which we haven't mentioned yet is rapid warming if it's stopped. What if you're doing it for a while and there's a big drought in India and they say, you damn geoengineers, you're causing this. Mm -hmm. Our citizens are demanding that you stop and so you stop and after a year or so, all the particles that were in the stratosphere are gone, and the sun is blazing back down on Earth, and you have this rapid warming at a rate much faster than you would have gotten if you hadn't done anything at all. So what you're saying is that
1: if we try this program for, say, 10 years, and then we stop because of threats from international war over geoengineering, we'll get those 10 years of solar warming Almost immediately? Yes. Wow. My colleague Rob Meyer passed along a great metaphor.
3: You're in an arena with a big bear, and the bear is climate change. And the question is... Could you throw a lion into the arena? Because you know, like maybe they'll fight and kill each other, or maybe they'll both team up and kill you.
1: When most people make a decision to buy a shirt, start a diet, declare a war, they weigh costs and benefits. Well, Alan Robach just listed one benefit and 27 risks of solar geoengineering. All things equal, this calculus seems easy. We can't do this. But all things aren't equal. Hurricanes are increasing in force. Coral reefs are dying. Droughts are triggering political crises. This isn't a risk-reward calculation. It's a risk-risk calculation. So the question isn't, are lions dangerous? The question is, are lions more dangerous than being trapped in a small cage with an angry bear? And to answer that question, We have to turn to one scientist doing more to understand solar geoengineering than just about anybody in the world.
4: The question is what our kids will do. People say one generation from now will likely face decisions where one of their options to deal with a climate crisis is solar geoengineering.
1: The man who would spray the skies after this. Rob, how would you characterize the way that climate scientists are approaching solar geoengineering? Is this an idea that they think is completely wacky, or are they taking it really seriously?
3: Climate scientists are taking it really seriously. If you're looking for a sign of that, you know Harvard now has a multi-million dollar research center devoted entirely to solar geoengineering.
1: And who is leading? Harvard solar geoengineering research efforts?
4: Uh, David Keith is. I'm David Keith, a professor at Harvard, both in public policy at the Kennedy School and also in engineering.
1: Perhaps no one in climate science is more closely tied to solar geoengineering research than David Keith.
4: Solar geoengineering could reduce important measures of climate change almost everywhere. Not just temperatures, but also reduce changes in, in water availability, uh, reduce extreme storms, etc.
1: At least... In theory. But Keith wants to test the theory. So his lab faces an interesting challenge. Nature provides a long history of volcanic eruptions cooling the Earth. But how do you study solar geoengineering without an erupting volcano?
4: We're developing an experiment we call SCOPEX, the Stratosphere Controlled Perturbation Experiment. And that experiment is designed to fly in the stratosphere on a balloon, and it makes a small plume, a small area of mixed air with propellers. And in that plume, we can mix things like sulfuric acid or calcium carbonate and make in-situ measurements to understand, for example, how aerosols stick together in the stratosphere.
1: To be crystal clear, David Keith does not have his hands on the planetary thermostat. He's not engineering the climate.
4: Because there is no effect on the climate of a, a tiny little measurement like this. What you're trying to do is measure the way things interact, in ways that will improve our models of those interactions, and that will in turn improve our larger global models of what the overall impacts, benefits, and harms of of solar geoengineering might be.
1: It might sound like a humble experiment. Spray a mist and measure it. But Keith's research divides the climate community. Some writers portray him as a kind of Dr. Frankenstein.
4: It's just endlessly true that that reporters want to caricature me in one way, and it's not what I think, and it's not useful, and I'm getting tired of it.
1: Others revere him as a magical wizard. In 2013, MIT Tech Review published an article about his research under the headline, A Cheap and
4: Easy Plan to Stop Global Warming. That's the clickbait headline, and it just makes me want to cry. I hate it. It makes me want to throw up. The brutal truth is, that's what sells.
1: But why are they wrong? After all, Alan Robach told me that solar geoengineering is
4: cheap. It's true that solar geoengineering itself is cheap, but the plan, which would be a combination of solar geoengineering and emissions cuts, is anything but cheap. So this is not a cheap and easy fix. It's not cheap, and it's not easy, and it's not even a fix. But it is something that might enable us to have lower climate risk overall with lots of complexities.
1: If you consider geoengineering to be absurd science fiction, ask yourself, absurd compared to what?
3: We already live in a science fictional world, literally the only planet in the universe that we know we can live on right now. Um, It's the planet where all of history has happened, where all of human meaning is centered. We're messing it up. And we haven't been able to do anything about that for 25 years.
1: I was born in May 1986. More carbon has been released into the atmosphere during my lifetime than in the entire history of civilization preceding it. The Earth is now as warm as it was before the last ice age, 100,000 years ago. Back then, the seas were nearly 20 feet higher than they are today. My apartment in Manhattan would be 10 feet underwater. The U.S. has known about climate change since at least 1965, and we failed to pass any major legislation to reduce emissions. The president of the United States has called climate change a Chinese hoax. Even foreign countries with the most progressive plans to reduce emissions are falling behind their own promises. Politics has failed and failed and failed again.
3: But on the other hand, solar geoengineering, it's just a big international technological project. And the world has, a great track record on those actually, right? Like we, NASA put 12 men on the moon, basically Europe collectively built the Large Hadron Collider. These giant engineering projects, we have a great record of doing as a species. And for that reason, I think it's, it's very possible that we get 20 years from now and our diplomatic and our political record on climate change is not any better. It doesn't seem impossible to me that we turn to a group of scientists and say, hey, Help us fix this problem.
1: Professor Keith, let's say I come to you as one of your students and say, honestly, this scares me. The end of blue skies, the possible fallout, it scares me to think that we would do this to our own planet, our only home.
4: The first thing I say is, come work on it. Like I say, those are all the right fears. If people's attitude was, we have this magic technical fix, let's just go do it and everything will be fine, that's what would scare me. So those fears are exactly the right place to start. The question is what our kids will do. How do we want to inform their choices? And my view is that deciding not to do research is, in a way, forcing them to make decisions in ignorance. We only have one world, and we only get to make this decision once.
1: Crazy Genius was produced by Patricia Jacob and Kasia Mihailovich with help from Asta, Chaturvedi, and Kevin Townsend. David Herman is our engineer, Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme song and all the music in this episode. Catherine Wells is the executive producer of Atlantic Podcast. Special thanks to Matt Thompson. See you next week.